Oscar Pistorius and race in South Africa, not all black and white. It's Wednesday, February 20th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Aaron Schachter in for Marco Werman. Today, why the Oscar Pistorius case is being called the O.J. Simpson trial of South Africa. Also, a Moroccan rapper on her country's Arab Spring, or lack thereof. We thought that we need change. I want to see all my brother and my sisters in Morocco working. Plus, meteorite hunters take note, it can be a dangerous business. You know, I've had to flee Peru. I was kidnapped and almost murdered in Kenya last year. It's a dangerous job, you know, but, you know, you have to go where the rocks are. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. A trial is still a long way off in the murder case of South African Olympian Oscar Pistorius, but details that emerged in a bail hearing today gave a preview of what to expect from the defense and prosecution at the trial. Pistorius is accused of murdering his girlfriend in his home last week. He says he shot Riva Steenkamp because he thought she was an intruder. Prosecutors say it was premeditated. Nastasia Tay is a radio reporter in Johannesburg who's been covering the case. Aaron, it's been a hugely, hugely dramatic day in court today. Um, we've heard testimony from the investigating officer in the case, Hilton Buerta. Now, he was initially called by the prosecution to kind of lay out some of the evidence um, that's pointing towards premeditated murder. He, he referenced a witness from several hundred meters away um, who, who lived down the road who spoke about different volleys of shots being fired. So a first volley, uh, a break, and then more shots being fired. And the prosecution has also referenced a witness who may have heard an hour of fighting or raised voices in the Pistorius home between 2 and 3 a.m., and even suggestions that that Pistorius may have taken some substances, including testosterone, which now it it appears um, was actually herbal medication that he was taking. Huge amounts of allegations flying. And and I've got to say, a lot of people really surprised that all of this is coming out in the bail hearing when when it's really just about deciding whether or not Pistorius will stay in police custody. Is is there talk about whether this is a tactic of the prosecution to get all this information out before the trial itself? Absolutely. Look, and and it could be very much a tactic from both sides. I've been speaking to different legal experts who say, you know, it's it's in the interest of the prosecution to push a a charge of premeditated murder, because then they're going to see a lot more of the defense's case well before the trial, which means that they can prepare themselves for the arguments that they're going to have to make later on. Now, obviously, from the defense side, one of the interesting things that we saw in court today was the defense pretty much take down the investigating officer. He, he crumbled on the stand. Um, there were allegations about how he, that the investigating officer and, and various police officers may have contaminated the scene by, by not wearing the right protective gear. And, and so it's actually worked out very well for the defense as well. So very much tactics on both sides. And it's unclear who's winning at this stage. Now, you've been talking to friends of Oscar Pistorius and the girlfriend he's accused of murdering, Riva Steenkamp. What, what have those friends been saying? 
It's interesting because everyone that I've spoken to pretty much since Thursday, since the, the incident actually happened, has said that they were a very happy couple. Reva told her friends that, you know, this could be the man that I marry. Oscar was saying, you know, this could be the one. Having said that, there have also been um, reports within the tabloid media here of various different altercations they may have had in, in car parks, outside social events. From the outside, they were very, very much the golden couple. Now, uh, Nastasia, we mentioned yesterday that Oscar Pistorius has assembled a media team in, in addition to his legal team. How has all this media attention affected the way other people connected with the case are uh, handling the press? I'd had individual sort of personal conversations with various close friends of, of Riva in particular who seemed very happy to speak. Now it, it kind of seems that everyone has an agent and whether or not that that's people who are looking to try to protect them or, or people looking to try to prevent them from contaminating evidence in the case or swaying public opinion. And there's certainly a vested interest in, in making sure that people close to the case aren't talking and that the only evidence that people are hearing is coming through the court process. Now, as you say, um, all this detail that we're getting is, is part of just a bail hearing, not a trial at all. How long is it going to be before the actual trial, do you think? It literally could be months. I've been speaking to different criminal lawyers to try to get a, a take on this. I mean, the bail hearing itself is already going to continue into a third day. After that, generally, it would take some time for the magistrate to go away and, and decide what he's going to do, whether he's going to grant bail or not. On average, that takes four to five days. It may well be expedited in a high-profile case like this. The whole case then will go to the Supreme Court, and at which point the, the state and, and various um, police officials need to start um, putting together all of the evidence and putting together their case in, in, in much more detail. The earliest that I've heard a possible trial date being discussed is October and potentially even up until March next year. Bear in mind, there are appeal processes. So whoever doesn't come out the way they want on, on the bail hearing may well then go through an appeal process right up to the, the Supreme Court. And that could in itself take weeks, if not months. Nastasia Tay is a journalist based in South Africa. Nastasia, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Some news agencies are already saying the Pistorius trial could be South Africa's own version of the O.J. Simpson case. That may be a stretch, but the comparison does raise issues about class, culture and race in South Africa. Des Latham is news editor of Summit TV in Johannesburg. I asked him if Oscar Pistorius transcends the cultural and economic divides there. Uh, to some extent... There are, but I think it's stretching the analogy a little far to talk about South Africa's O.J. Simpson trial for a number of reasons. The first is that Oscar Pistorius is and has been welcomed by all races in South Africa because of his physical um, handicap. He's been seen as a person who's striven to overcome all, and in many ways he's not really a, a person of race. He's a person of, of a physical defect. And that superseded race because of what he accomplished and what he overcame. Exactly, exactly. It has struck South Africa. Uh, he's, he was understood and perceived as, as a person who'd risen above oppression, oppression of his own physical defect from birth. And therefore, the majority of South Africans regarded him, in fact, everyone regarded him as a hero. He was also apparently the most, one of the most recognizable sports personalities, not just in South Africa, but worldwide. And he was like a bionic man. He was like a superhero, you know, dancing around the track. And that's how South Africans perceived him as, as truly heroic, fighting that's how South Africans see themselves as fighting adversity and succeeding against all odds and, you know, small nation being able to do great things. And, so and, um, it, it, it has shocked the, 
country. But but do you think there will be this perception that um, he got special treatment because he is rich and famous? Yes, it has happened already. I've heard in the streets some people talking about it, saying that because he's famous, he went straight to court. In South Africa, justice moves extremely slowly. And people are saying because he's famous, he um, got a crack at the court saga uh, rather than my brother who has been waiting for his trial for six months, seven months, stuff like that. And uh, there's a bit of cynicism about that. Like the OJ trial, many news analysts have been saying that this case um, will essentially be tried by public opinion. Do you agree with that? I actually don't agree with that. I think that the court procedure in South Africa is very different to um, America. Um, in South African courts, there's no jury. And the and second thing is, the difference here is that television has been banned from the courtroom. So if we're not going to have exactly the same effect of what amounts to a daytime TV show, soap opera style. Um, but I think also the facts are slightly different, where you have a uh, an accused who's not denying he was there, firstly. Secondly, they don't have to prove whose blood was lying on the floor or whether or not he actually held the firearm that pulled the shot. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, that some of the facts are loud and clear. And I think it's going to happen much, much quicker than the adjacent saga. And, and you think because there isn't a jury trial system in South Africa that the, this rush of social media and the commentary on it won't have um, the same kind of effect on the case um, as it does in the American judicial system? I wouldn't pass too much judgment on the American judicial system, other than to say that there's a judge who cloisters him or herself away and doesn't listen to the radio. They don't take account of whatever what's going on. They won't be twittering. They won't be listening to tweets. They won't be going to Facebook. They won't be doing any of that. Um, It's just one person who's who's going to make a decision and then write out his or her beliefs about what has taken place. So I I, I am hopeful that that the correct decision will be made. Des Latham is news editor of Summit TV in uh, Johannesburg. Des, thank you so much. Thanks, Aaron. There's been positive news out of Africa recently when it comes to the economy. Some countries there are enjoying rapid growth and rising prosperity. That's generally come with the help of foreign investment, but also thanks to Africans themselves who spent time abroad and are now bringing home money and business skills. The world's Anders Kelto reports from Ethiopia. At a salon in Addis Ababa, customer Erika Kanesa relaxes in a leather chair. She leans her head back while a beautician works on her nails. I'm just doing manicure and pedicure. Yeah, just having a good time. <laughs> Spa businesses in Ethiopia are thriving. That's partly because the country's middle class is expanding. But it's also, one could argue, because of one guy. My name is Tadios Getachopeleta. Tadios was born here in Ethiopia. But like many, he fled in the 1970s when an oppressive communist government took over. He settled in the U.S. and eventually opened a successful salon in an upscale part of Boston. After a new Ethiopian government took power, he decided to move home. He says the decision was partly sentimental, but it also made good business sense. Anyone with a good smell of business can feel and sense of there is an opportunity here. So he decided to do something that no one in Ethiopia had yet done open a luxury spa. I was the first one and everybody was laughing at me. You would not get any customers, but uh, surprisingly enough, uh, uh, we had an amazing turnout. Now we have about 89 spas. Today, his company employs more than 1,500 people. The company's name? 
Boston Day Spa. Ethiopian economist Bisrat Tashoma says many returning expats have named their businesses after the cities where they lived abroad. Amsterdam restaurant, New York cafe, Oslo cafe, and Paris, La Parisian. Bisrat says Ethiopians returning from these places have contributed more than a billion dollars to the economy. They've opened more than 2,000 companies. And in some cases, they've changed the local work ethic. Makonin Kadadamariam is an Ethiopian businessman who lived in Canada for much of his life before opening a hotel in Addis Ababa. He says his employees used to avoid hard work, but once they saw him putting in long hours, their attitudes changed. When I see their motivation level from where they were to where they are, it's very encouraging. Makonin says his employees have helped make his hotel very successful. Other hotels are flourishing too. But economist Bisrat Tashoma says what Ethiopia really needs is for returning business people to put their expertise and money into manufacturing. If that money was pumped into the industry sector, then it creates more jobs. He says that for the same investment it takes to open a high-end spa, a person could open a factory that would create 10 times as many jobs. A factory would also boost trade and create more long-term prosperity for Ethiopia. So Bisrat hopes more returning business people will start turning to things like textiles and leather, not massages and manicures. For The World, I'm Anders Kelto, Addis Ababa. You can now flip through our coverage of Africa and the rest of the globe on your iPad, iPhone, or Android device. Just download the Flipboard app at flipboard.com slash the world. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Hey, kid, want to buy a piece of space rock? Well, we've got the guy for you. He's meteorite hunter Michael Farmer from Tucson, Arizona. Soon after the news broke last week about that meteor exploding over Russia, alleged chunks of the space rock started popping up for sale on the Internet. And then the email started pouring into Farmer's inbox. I have requests from hundreds and hundreds of uh, collectors, people that I've known, uh, new people I've never heard of, and actually scientists from around the world. You know, they want to cut the red tape and get pieces into the laboratory as quick as possible, and I'm usually the one that can do that. You're the guy who's got to go pick these things up. Yeah, my visas are in, my passport's in, and I should be in Russia in a few days. You've been in the meteor business now for 18 years. How does someone get started in that? You know, it's, it's hard to describe. I live in Tucson. The world's largest gem and mineral show is here, and uh, I bought a meteorite at this show one time, and I fell in love with it. And, you know, the thought of holding something from outer space just uh, blew my mind. Uh, I became obsessed and you know, emptied my bank accounts and bought every piece I could do. And then I started running around the world chasing them anytime they fall. And uh, it really uh, became successful. And uh, that's that's it. That's 24 hours a day. All I do is rocks. Now, when you say you've traveled uh, all over the world, you're not kidding. You've been to 70 countries in search of space rocks. And with your travels has come a lot of fun stories and not so fun stories. You found yourself in some dicey situations. What lengths will you go to to find uh, rocks? There's never really been anywhere that I refuse to go um, outside of, say, Afghanistan, but uh, we haven't had a fall there yet. So, uh, 
You know, anybody can buy it and get a FedEx package. I prefer to go there and negotiate with a goat herder that saw it land by his goat, you know, and the adventure is a big part of it. Tell me some of the troubles you've gotten into, the lengths to which you've gone. You know, I've had to flee Peru. Uh, you know, I've had the border police uh, extorting me, trying to rob me blind. Uh, was kidnapped and almost murdered in Kenya last year. I uh, you know, was on my knees with a machete at my throat and a gun at my head being beaten, you know, for 20 minutes. And, uh, you know, I got put in prison in the Sultanate of Oman for a couple of months, you know, and it's it's a dangerous job. You know, it's, it's sort of, it's Indiana Jones, basically. You know, you're running from uh, natives and, and whatever, military. I've been in minefields, uh, a lot of danger involved, but, you know, you have to go where the rocks are. How much are these things worth? What will the Russian rocks go for, for example? It's hard to put a price on it. I mean, the, the Russian thing is certainly the biggest news in the history of meteoritics in, in my lifetime. I fully expect them to find thousands of kilos on the ground. So in the end, I don't believe it's going to be worth that much. In my opinion, I think it'll go for several dollars a gram in the end market. Um, you know, right now people are quoting crazy prices of thousands of gram. Well, that'll never happen. You know, that's just a dream. Now, uh, you said sometimes you have to negotiate with goat herders. How do you know you're getting what they say you're getting? Most of these things are easily identifiable, you know, especially to somebody like me that's been doing it forever. You know, you, you, you know what you're looking for. And, and what are you looking for? For example, the one in Russia is a, con a common chondrite. Um, they'll be black burned rocks. They usually have a black fusion crust. There should be a lot of metal flex, and it should stick to a magnet pretty easily. There is a real question of ownership, right? When a rock hits the Earth from outer space, who does own it? Is it just fair game? Does it belong to the country? Do different countries have different laws? How does it work? Most countries have no law, you know, so it's kind of free-for-all. I mean, you know, I've been to countries where it falls and the police come and confiscate it, saying, that's ours. Well, why would that be yours? It fell and went through somebody's house. And a recent case in Austria is a good example. Somebody found a meteorite that had just fallen in the Germany and, and it crossed into Austria as well. And the government confiscated it and they sued the government and went to the high court. And the government said that uh, it belonged to the finder, that that was not part of the land. And under their law now, it kind of sets a precedent that it belongs to the finder. The big question for me is, why don't you have a reality TV show? The realities of meteorite hunting is, you know, 99% boredom and 1% terror, you know. <laughs> and yeah, but it'd be pretty so cool to watch you run from the authorities in Peru. Unfortunately, I think having a camera crew behind me would make me have to run a lot more often. So, <laughs> you know, true. I, I kind of prefer to work in peace and quiet. How do you hear about the meteors? Are you just on the news constantly? Well, I have Google Alerts set up in about 25 different languages. So anytime something pops up on the news, usually I can catch it pretty quick. The Russian thing I caught within 10 minutes of the fall. But it's word of mouth. I'm plugged in with scientists around the world with universities and things like that. And usually when something happens, we can get it pretty quick. Is this all about money for you, or is there another purpose to collecting these rocks? Uh, it's definitely not about money. I mean, uh, you know, obviously I have to pay for the trips and, and try to make a living at it. But the most important part is the scientific data. I mean, this is one of the most important meteorite falls in history. And, you know, acquiring samples as rapidly as possible, that takes cash. You know, the scientists don't have the money to do that or the time, so they rely on people like me to just get samples out to them into the laboratory and those would be the first orders I fill. If I went to Russia and only get a few pieces, those pieces are all going to the laboratories. So you're all visaed up, headed off to uh, Lake Chabarkul, where the meteor hit. What do you hope to find? I plan to go to Chelyabinsk and uh, collect a lot of the debris and glass and get photos with the buildings and talk to witnesses and uh, you know just be a part of history. I mean, it's not often a, a meteor comes into the atmosphere with nuclear bomb blast uh, shock waves. You know, we've never seen that before, and you know I may never see it again in my lifetime.
Michael Farmer is a meteorite hunter based in Tucson, Arizona. He's headed off to Russia. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, the same day the meteor came down in Russia, an asteroid buzzed the planet. Totally unrelated, but it came pretty close, at least as far as these things go. I don't even want to think about what might have happened had it hit, but what a missed opportunity. The asteroid may have contained billions of dollars worth of ore and minerals, stuff we could use, as the world's Alex Galifant reports. Last spring, a company called Planetary Resources released this ad. Everything we hold of value on Earth, metals, minerals, energy, water, real estate, are literally in near infinite quantities in space. Planetary Resources' mission is to gain access to the natural resources of space by mining near-Earth approaching asteroids. Planetary Resources is backed by Hollywood director James Cameron, and they're not the only player in the game. There are a few others planning to mine approaching asteroids, including a company called Deep Space Industries. They plan to launch an exploratory mission to investigate near-Earth objects by 2015. David Gump, the chief executive of Deep Space Industries, says making use of water in space is a major focus for his business. A really good asteroid would be an extinct comet that's mostly water. We bring it back into a parking orbit around Earth and start uh, just basically baking it to drive off the water and turn it into rocket fuel. Now, people have been talking about space mining for decades. So what's changed? That's what's being discussed at a conference going on in Sydney, Australia at the moment. It's called Off-Earth Mining. Scientists there are discussing one of the ways asteroid mining might be becoming more feasible, and that's robots. Gordon Ressler is an American space robotics specialist now based in Australia. I mean, if you look around what robots can do under the ocean, what they're doing in factories, and what they're doing on Mars right now with the Curiosity rover up there, those are things that we really couldn't prove were going to be viable 20 years ago. Now they are, so these companies are saying, well, we'll make a long-term play. The long-term possibilities are tantalizing if they actually come true. Things like giant celestial power stations or expanded bases on the moon or Mars constructed out of raw materials mined from asteroids. Still, the technological challenges are incredibly daunting, and legal questions surrounding extraterrestrial mining rights are still a long way from being answered. But beyond that, it's all going to cost massive amounts of money. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant. And still ahead, the full Monty in Italy on PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Coming up on The World, why did a million Norwegians tune in to watch a 12-hour TV show about firewood? Well, because wood is a very serious topic in Norway. Almost everybody has a stack of wood. And you can also actually tell how the man in the house is by looking at his uh, wood stack. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter, in for Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. 
The health of the global economy isn't just a matter of cold, hard numbers. Politics have a big impact, too, of course. Just look at the sequester debate in Washington. In Europe, which is still grappling with its massive debt crisis, there's another political deadline looming, the elections this weekend in Italy. And the economy is very much on the minds of Italian voters. After a year of massive budget cuts and tax hikes pushed through by Italy's current prime minister, the economist Mario Monti, He's a candidate in the election, but he's not the frontrunner. That would be Pierluigi Bersani, leader of the left-leaning Democratic Party and a former communist. His lead in the polls is shrinking, though. Many voters find him boring. Gianni Riotta is a columnist for the Italian newspaper La Stampa. He says Bersani isn't in it for the popularity. He doesn't want to be known that much. He doesn't want to be an household name. He wants people to focus on the party. And I asked him a couple of weeks ago, how come you were on TV on you got like uh, airtime 20% of the time while Berlusconi is getting 60%? You risk people not to know you enough. He said, like, look, I want my ideas to go ahead, not myself. We'll see if this bet will work on the election day, um, February 24th. Despite his communist roots, Riotta says Bersani supports liberalizing the Italian economy to make it more competitive, but his failure to close the deal with voters may provide an opportunity for Italy's version of the comeback kid. Yep, the scandal-tainted former leader of the center-right, Silvio Berlusconi. He was forced to resign at the height of Italy's debt crisis, criticized for not having the political courage to make the necessary budget cuts. But now he's back and hoping for a fifth term as prime minister. Riotta doesn't see that happening. Berlusconi won't win. But the idea that since Berlusconi lost power in, in 2011 to Mr. Monti, he had gone away. It's a delusion that the Italian center-left followed. Riotta says Berlusconi could get enough votes to complicate the election's outcome. That could lead to tense negotiations to form a ruling coalition. Another possible power broker is a former comedian turned populist candidate. His name is Beppe Grillo, and Riotta says he could really shake things up in Italy. The program is pretty much a populist program to break with the euro, to arrest all the politicians, to fight corruptions, and to stop the high-speed train program, to stop any kind of NATO military installations in Italy. This sounds pretty crazy, I know, but La Stampa unearthed a few days ago documents that the American embassy in Rome has sent to the State Department uh, praising Mr. Grillo as a credible, serious political leader. That was Gianni Riotta, columnist for the Italian newspaper La Stampa, talking about Beppe Grillo, a comedian-turned-political candidate in Italy. The bad economy has many Italians looking for new careers. Unemployment is a top concern in Italy right now. It's also the theme of a new Italian stage adaptation of The Full Monty. Megan Williams attended the show in Rome and has this report on The Full Monty, Italian style. Just hours before opening night, Massimo Piparo paces nervously along the aisle of the well-worn Teatro Sistina in Rome. On stage, performers put the final touches on dance routines while a sound check gets underway. I thought to bring on stage some a part of reality, of real life. Piparo has a lot at stake in the success of this first Italian production of The Full Monty, the story of laid-off factory workers who turn to stripping to get by. 
as director and producer. He's put up his own money to bring the musical comedy to Italy at a time when Italians hardly feel like laughing about unemployment. Now at 11%, 30% for young people. I think that in this moment in Italy, there are a lot of people that are thinking about what can I do to make money instead of following the, the job I had because now the employment has been lost so there is nothing to do I mean it will not change Originally the full Monty was set in the industrial decline of northern England to reflect the Italian reality the setting was shifted to northern Italy to Turin that's home to the Fiat car company a major employer which has laid off thousands of workers in recent years and to inject more Italian realismo into the show, Piparo auditioned unemployed men, and not just actors, for lead roles. Carpenter Simone Lagrasta, one of 70 who auditioned, said he threw the phone in the air when the production called to say he'd landed a role. The short, wiry 24-year-old had just lost his latest job when he was stopped by a casting agent after signing up to work as a carpenter in Finland. Like thousands of young people here, he was ready to leave Italy. He says being in the musical has fulfilled a teenage dream, and not just because his role involves sexily clad women ripping off his pants. It's also pulled him out of the unemployment blues. I think this is a great project. For me, the show is about the drive to just keep going, to not let the recession get you down and to even fight your way out of it. 38-year-old Marco Serafini sold hair salon products until his business dried up last year. He's the other unemployed man to join the cast. He too dreamed of being an actor, but never expected his slide into joblessness would be reversed by swinging his hips in a red thong. It's all the fault of the strain. Sarafini offers to sing a few lines from the theme song about the spread, the English word that's been in the headlines here for much of the past year. It refers to the worrisome price gap between German and Italian bonds that put the euro in danger. It's clear from the audience reaction that the full Monty resonates here. But director Massimo Piparo says as politicians campaigning for upcoming elections make unrealistic promises of tax refunds and job security, he hopes Italians get more out of the show than mere enjoyment. The show is a little suggestion, is stop promises, just doing something by ourselves, but concrete, doing something real. For The World, I'm Megan Williams in Rome. You know how the full Monty ends, right? Well, that's how our geo-quiz begins. No music today because it's a bear geo-quiz. We're looking for a famous museum in the Austrian capital, Vienna. It houses one of the world's largest collections of modern Austrian art, works by the likes of Egon Schiele and Gustav Klimt. 
And right now it's also home to a special exhibit, Nude Men from 1800 to the Present Day, 300 works of art in all. And what better way to experience that collection than by seeing it in the buff? It might sound like a crazy idea, but it happened. On Monday, the museum opened its doors for naked visitors. People like Vienna native Reiner, who didn't give his last name. I spend the whole summer at the nude beach. When I'm on vacation, Reiner said, nakedness is the most natural thing in the world, he added. I think it's great to offer something like this. About 60 people strolled around the gallery wearing nothing more than their socks and shoes. I guess no bare feet allowed. Think of it as a kind of life-imitating-art experience. It was inspired by an incident in November when a man stripped naked in front of one of the paintings and then started to wander around the gallery until a guard asked him to put his clothes back on. According to museum spokesman Klaus Pokorny, the museum got so many requests to tour the exhibit, bearing all, that they decided to make it official. There was simply demand, he said. We got requests from all over the world, people who asked us, can we visit the exhibition nude? Some of the naked visitors were quoted as describing the experience as different. Yep, just different. So where were all these naked museum goers? Well, here's the answer. The Leopold Museum in Vienna. Wandering around naked really isn't my scene. For a start, I'd be worried about losing my coat check ticket. If touring a museum in the nude isn't your idea of quality entertainment, well, maybe this is. That's a clip from a 12-hour TV program that a million Norwegians, one in five people in the country, tuned in to watch recently. And you don't need to speak Norwegian to enjoy the program because it's about wood and fire and not a whole lot else. The TV program first showed people sitting around a fire talking about chopping, stacking, and burning wood. Then, for the next eight hours, it showed a fire burning in a fireplace with the occasional log thrown in. Rune Mukelvust is head of programming in Bergen for Norway State Broadcaster, NRK, uh, Rune, you put this program on the station. Why? <laughs> Why? Yeah. The background is very easy, actually. One year ago, there came out a book in Norway called Strong Wood, which is a theme book about every aspect of firewood, from taking the trees down in the wood and chopping it and stacking it and, and then eventually burning it, how to do it, and also a lot about the culture and the, the passion behind it. And that's sold in 150,000 copies in Norway, which is very, a very large number. So we thought this must be possible to do good television on. And that's first we thought there may be a TV series, but eventually turned into a, a whole night, 12 hours uh, with uh, guests and music and chopping and stacking and then uh, some fireplace TV the, <laughs> the last eight hours. Okay, okay. Now, America has its share of um, odd reality programs. There are hours and hours of fishing shows. We have something called Ice Road Truckers with guys driving across uh, frozen Alaska. And I watched a bit of the this show that has the people in it. It's out in the woods. It's interesting. But eight hours of a fire. What's up with that? <laughs> well, why not? It's yeah. just a fire. And people actually like watching fire when, when, it, when it's on in their own stove uh, in their houses. So uh, and they got everything except the, the smell and to put logs on on themselves. 
Uh, well, but, but they do get to direct how the logs go. First of all, the show is live. The fire is, is happening as people are watching. Mm-hmm. And you've set it up so it's interactive in some way. People could interact via Twitter and Facebook and so on. But there was only one photographer there who put logs on and kept the fire going. The Norwegian audience a bit used to kind of quirky programming. <laughs> we call it uh, slow TV. So that's uh, kind of a recipe for success in some way. <laughs> Rune, I have to say I, I'm chuckling here as you talk, but part of what I think Americans wouldn't get is the role that wood plays in life in Norway. It's a much bigger deal there than it is here, right? A lot more of heating is done with wood and so on. Yeah, it's a very fundamental thing. If we didn't have the firewood, we couldn't live here. The author of this book has that perspective on it. So and it goes deep into the Norwegian culture and passion and everyday life, actually. Uh, almost everybody has a stack of wood. And you can also actually tell how the man in the house is by looking at his uh, wood stack. So, what, what, <laughs> so wait, what's of, that? Um, yeah, they say you can... You can, <laughs> you can, you can tell how the man in the house is by his wood. By yeah, and uh, how it is stacked. But there's a lot of um, uh, explanations uh, on that. And the last one is no wood stack, no husband. We talked about the fireplace as uh, being something soothing overnight, mm-hmm. but 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 some of the comments you get uh, show that people are not soothed by this at all. There's quite a debate over where to place the logs in the fire, whether you uh, put the bark up or bark down. How, yes. how do people come down on that question? Norwegians are very divided on that question. Depends on where in Norway you live. If you live in the dry parts of Norway and the inland of Norway, uh, you uh, place the bark uh, upside down. If you're from, from the western part of Norway, which <laughs> I am, you face the bark up. Uh, and there's a lot of discussions, a lot of passion in that discussion. Uh, it's not that people fight over it, but it's it's a very funny and and uh, deep discussion in some way. The debate over up or down was only in the stacking process. Only in the stacking uh, okay. process, the drying of the of the wood. In addition to watching a fire, you also had uh, the camera woman uh, roast some food as you went along. Yeah, of course she had she had to eat, so and she was the only one in the, in the room. So, so why not so take advantage to... of the fire since it's there? Yeah, of course. Yeah, she had some sausages and some marshmallows. Rune Mokovust is head of programming in Bergen for NRK. Rune, thank you for your time and uh, your sense of humor. Thank you, thank you. Now, if you want to see and who wouldn't some of that fire burning or weigh in on the great bark up or bark down debate you can go to our website, theworld.org. This is The World. I'm Aaron Schachter. A mortar bomb struck a soccer match taking place in Damascus today, killing a player. The incident highlights a stark truth about the two-year-old civil war in Syria. Fighting continues, but so too does ordinary life. It's something that John Reford has written about for the website Your Middle East. Reford is a freelance journalist living in the old city of Damascus. John... Why are you still there? <laughs> well, I've, I've been living in Damascus for 10 years. And, you know, I've, I've bought a house here. I've, I've got a life here. And, uh, you know, it's a difficult time, but it's, it's not so easy just to uh, up sticks and leave, really. So in that respect, you're, you're pretty much like uh, your average Syrian. Pretty much, in, in, in many respects, yeah. You, you write on this website, Your Middle East, that you can hear the war... In your article, you describe listening to shells shrieking over your house. 
how, how do you deal with that day to day? Um, well, I think that um, uh, you, you deal with it day to day. You know, it's, it's kind of a learning process. You know, things have, have escalated slowly, and as they've escalated, you, you kind of learn to, to sort of deal with things. It's very scary, but at the same time, you kind of use a degree of logic. I know that the shells are very high in the sky and they're passing over and traveling much further away than where I'm living. So, you know, you kind of draw a little bit of hope from that. Now, uh, you, you write that uh, security in the old city is pretty tight. You're seeing a lot more uh, military men with guns. And in fact, you've had some uh, visits in the middle of the night. Uh, how, do, how do you deal with that? Um, well, I think it's, you just deal with it. It's something that's happening all, all over the country. And, and what do the police want? Uh, what are they looking for when they come in the middle of the night? Uh, well, they're, not, they're generally not looking for me. They're looking for, you know, for people with weapons. And they don't give you a whole long conversation about it. They just kind of search the house and uh, ask you one or two questions and look at your papers. And ha- have you changed personally the way you live at all? I, I don't know, your your movements in and out of the city, in and out of the country, perhaps, um, the way you go about your daily life, anything? Yeah, people don't go out as much late at night. You know, Syria was one of those typical Mediterranean countries where people don't really get started until midnight, whereas now the, the sort of cafes are venting by 8 o'clock in the evening or earlier. Many of my friends have left the country, so, you know, from a social perspective, it's, it's very much changed. In your article, you talk about the resilience of Damascenes and how life is carrying on. But how anxious are you and, and your neighbors about what happens if the opposition finally breaks into your part of town, uh, which you describe as staunchly loyal to the regime? Well, it's, um, of course, regardless of what side of the fence your loyalties lie, you don't want the worst of the problems on your own doorstep. So, of course, everybody's scared. Nobody really knows the reality of what's going on. There's so much propaganda and speculation that it's difficult to know what's going on in other parts of the country. Um, but of course, everybody, everybody is, is, is worried. And um, we don't know where this is, is, is leading and, and, and what will follow. Photojournalist and Damascus resident John Reeford, thank you. You're welcome. Today marks the second anniversary of what some call Morocco's version of the Arab Spring. It didn't unseat a dictator, but the king did institute some reforms. Things have changed for many Moroccans, especially young people. Now some have found their voice in rap music. Mary Stuckey tells the story of one young Moroccan rapper. Sultana and her band won Morocco's biggest amateur music competition a few years back and promptly became the most recognized female rap group in Africa. Sultana's hit single, The Voice of Women, is her anthem. She gave him money, love, and life, Sultana says. He gave her lies and violence. This is the Moroccan woman. This is one of a million. Sultana raps about the challenges facing women in this North African country, illiteracy, poverty, domestic violence, and daily harassment on the street. Sultana tells Moroccan men, look at her like your mother, like your sister, like her, like me, and like you. Rap, she says, is like coffee. It wakes you up. And it's a way to raise sensitive issues in a country without freedom of speech. 
Sultana's real name is Yusra Ukuf, and she's 27. She walks a fine line, calling for change in Morocco without criticizing the king. Other Moroccan rappers have ended up in jail for crossing the line, but Sultana says she loves the king. She implores him to improve life for his people, especially young people like her. We saw that we need change. I want to see all my brother and my sisters in Morocco working, have jobs. Some of Morocco's Feb 20 activists have called for democracy and an end to the monarchy. But Sultana doesn't go that far, and neither, she says, do most of her fans. We don't need the revolution. We just need solution to the problem. So I think hip-hop, it's something that caters people that collected a lot of youth from all over Morocco and make them feel like live as a family in one place, just talking about problems. Here in every street you have rappers. You have kids with 14, 15 that you know, are talking, and that's, I think it's great for a society. Cristina Moreno Almeida is a Spanish researcher who studies rappers in Morocco. She says even older Moroccans find meaning in rap music. They say rappers are speaking to the country's problems. Still, Morocco is a conservative Muslim country. Most women wear headscarves and a few cover their faces, too. Not Sultana. She sports long dreadlocks one day, a polished coiffure the next. Sultana admits some religiously conservative Moroccans may not like her image. Morocco, there is Islam, so the religion, it's not 100% agreeing with the music. But I was like concentrating on the respect first. I wanted to, to be the girl, Moroccan girl, Muslim girl on stage talking about something that's real, and the people respect her. Sultana doesn't sell her music. She makes it available free on the Internet. She relies on support from her parents and support from abroad. Everybody is connecting on Internet. We have the famous Facebook now. So if the people just download, and because the people in Morocco, they are so poor. So I think if they download the music and the music will, will spread in the community in Morocco, it's, it's good for us. For the world, I'm Mary Stuckey, Rabat, Morocco. You can see Sultana working the crowds live on stage. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. Shalea Harris and William Mitali contributed to this story. It was produced in association with Round Earth Media and SIT Study Abroad's Morocco Journalism Program. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Aaron Schachter. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. 
Donors to the trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.